1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: We love part three, subtitled a profile, a story of, of two different kinds of churches. And we see this in Revelation 3 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive. You are dead. I can
0: see the promised land. Though there's pain within the plan. There is victory in the end. Your love is my battle cry. The anthem for all my life. Every dragon will fall. The mountains will move.
1: Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the program. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you can. On today's program, Pastor Keith continues with the Future Grace series, an in-depth study of the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to Revelation chapter 3. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, uh, a day that you've made, a day that we can rejoice and be glad, and a day to look into one of the happiest books in the Bible, the Book of Revelation, and in its own way, one of the simplest. If we just ask three questions, Father: What does the text say? What does the text mean? And what do we do? Uh, Father, help us, Lord, uh, to focus on the flow of the discourse, Lord, to not become distracted by shiny objects that. May seem initially at least hard to understand, but help us to look into this word, your perfect law of liberty, and be changed by it, not forgetting what we see, but letting it burn the images into our minds, our hearts, and our souls, and our witness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In 1924, John D. Rockefeller was looking for a church that he could get behind, and the problem was he couldn't find any. And so he went to a church in Manhattan and he offered them $500,000 in cash to preach the kind of sermons that he wanted to hear, to emphasize the things that he wanted to emphasize, and to not get so hung up on some of the details about what the Word of God said. And in, in those days, 1924, $500,000 would be at least to $10 million in today's today's currency, and that would be an attractive sum of money. But they nodded and said, thank you for the money, but we'll keep preaching the way that we preach. And so he moved on, and he and one of his colleagues agreed they were gonna build a church that would preach the kind of sermons that were relevant to people like them. Uh, And so they built what is today called the Riverside Church in New York City in Manhattan. At the end of 1925, they called a kind of an up-and-coming, fiery brand kind of preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick. He agreed to become the first pastor. He was uh, an innovator at his time. He wanted to unhitch uh, his, the, uh, the church from the Old Testament, and he wanted to teach... the People, things that mattered. He considered the Bible largely irrelevant to the modern mind. And so, therefore, the sermons and the focus of that church needed to be geared toward those who would normally not darken the door of a church. He was a skilled communicator. And as he began to preach, the church began to fill. And in the 30s and 40s and 50s, it reached uh, something like 4,000 people a Sunday. It would be the first megachurch in America, dwarfing many of the churches in New York and, and even the surrounding country. And he lined up, and it was a tradition to line up, many, many notable speakers over the years. People have filled that pulpit. Nobel Prize winners, scientists. uh, Martin Luther King in 1968 preached that that famous sermon against the Vietnam War in that pulpit. Later, Nelson Mandela spoke in that pulpit. All kinds of people have spoken in that pulpit. Fast forward to 2009, and we see this uh, headline in the New York Times. Pastor at Riverside Church ends stormy tenure with unexpected resignation. What happened? A new pastor had come. He had replaced a a man who had been there for 35 years. And this new pastor was gonna really, hopefully, guide the church deep into the 21st century, reaching people they had not reached before. Uh, He came from an African-American church and he hit the ground running. And in no time flat, there was a move to remove him. And they put terrible, terrible pressure on this man and he was forced out within his first 12 months of ministry or shortly thereafter. And the New York Times explains uh, what the cause was, what the problem was. What do you think the problem was? According to dissidents, the pastor went about bringing undesirable traditions into the church services. They said he called on worshipers to come forward and bear witness to their faith. And he preached at times what they considered a riverside church heresy that Jesus and Jesus only was the way to salvation according to one uh, longtime attender at Riverside his focus on personal salvation on the on the individual was diametrically opposed to the tradition of Riverside here we believe you achieve salvation by doing social justice out in the world in some ways, it was a church ahead of its time, again, I, I suppose. Fast forward five years after an extensive church. In 2014, they call yet another pastor. And the new senior minister, in the announcement uh, their announcement for her reads like this. We really see her as a rising star, someone who's going to engender real excitement at our church. Her biography indicated that she was the single mother of four young, uh, three young adults. Uh, She was uh, an advocate of of, uh, pro-choice movement. She raised eyebrows in 2016, writing an op-ed piece in the USA Today touting her uh, late-term abortion. And by 2019, she had resigned as well. In her case, it was a sexual harassment scandal. Uh, And uh, you you sit here and you look at a church like that and say, "How do these things happen? How do these things happen?" Well, that's what we're studying today, isn't it? In the letter of the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three. Uh, You know, we're studying this larger study, Future Grace, a study of the apocalypse of John, but we're in this mini-series within this series called Listening to the One We Love, and we've had parts one and two, and we've seen Jesus speak to each of these seven churches. We're gonna deal with three churches today. And he's given them sort of a spiritual report card, and we've seen that Jesus doesn't grade on a curve. He has very exacting standards for his churches. And what we we're seeing here is that uh, pretty, pretty much so far, all the churches are failing. You have Ephesus, you know, a church among churches. You have Pergamum, you have Thyatira. You know, you, you, you look at Laodicea. And what we see are churches failing because while they do many things right, they do not do the one thing that he wants done and that is to be faithful to him in all things. He doesn't expect sinless perfection, but he expects obedience. He calls us to serve, to pick up our cross daily and follow after him and not compromise our faith. And as, as I look over the study and I was trying to figure out today, how are we gonna land this plane? In three, you know, How are we gonna finish this study within this study within three within three sermons. I determined last night I should have gone seven, but you know, it's a little late for that. But what I wanted to do today is ask you to sort of step back with me now and look down on these churches. And I've asked you to read ahead, you know, chapters two and three, and be with me and understand what we're looking at here. But what you're really looking at, I think, are what experts call the stages of dying. In our world today, uh, experts, end of life experts, look at churches, excuse me, look at people, and when people begin to die, when they get a a terminal diagnosis, they go through various stages of death. They go through denial, they go through anger and shock or anger and surprise, they go through a stage of bargaining, they go through a stage of depression, and they finally come to a stage of acceptance. And I believe this applies to some degree to these churches that we see in chapters two and three Revelation denial there must be some mistake, and there's an attempt to have an actual reality be replaced by a preferred reality. There's this denial of, of the problem. That's Ephesus. We talked about this two weeks ago. Ephesus was a church of churches, it was doctrinally precise, it had the dream team of pastors, it had Paul, Timothy, Apollos, and then. John, the beloved apostle whom Jesus loved. And yet, Jesus said, But I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. You don't do the things you did in the beginning. You've lost steam. You've lost your passion. Repent, or I will snuff out your lampstand. He gives them a failing grade. Then you come to uh, anger and shock. Well, that's Pergamum. Anger and shock is usually that you're struck by the perceived unfairness of a situation. Sometimes uh, patients shoot the messenger. They attack the doctor who gives them the uh, diagnosis. And that's what's going on in Pergamum. They have this failed inspection. They're called to repentance. And here's a church that preaches the gospel. Here's a church that suffers persecution. And yet, they get a failing grade. Why is that? You remember? Because they did not preach a pure gospel. They'd sought to compromise the message, to adapt it to the people, not to adapt the people to God, so to speak. And so they have this shock that they're going to be snuffed out too if they don't repent, that they get this failing grade. You know, They have the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They have sought to be accommodating to the things that they should not accommodate. And I would submit to you they were in shock when they heard that pronouncement, when they read this letter from Jesus. Now sometimes these things move us to action. Sometimes they don't. Bargaining, we see that in Thyatira. Bargaining is trying to cut a deal you can live with. But when, you, when, you, when you're dying, you, don't, you can't make deals. You, there's no deal to make. When you are given a diagnosis, you need to respond to that diagnosis. Sometimes it's the difference between life and death, and sometimes you can turn it around. But Thyatira was attempting to tolerate a scripturally unqualified teacher, a self-proclaimed prophetess, who was teaching things that led people to be spiritually adulterous, maybe even physically adulterous, physically immoral, spiritually immoral, and they were trying to serve two masters. They were trying to say, yeah, we, we too suffer, and we too still preach the gospel, but this, this prophet is here, we, we, we're trying to accommodate her. We wanna be all things to all people, perhaps. And God doesn't cut deals. He doesn't tolerate sin, he doesn't grade on a curve, and he doesn't believe in spiritual grade inflation. And so he fails them and says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You know, we talked about it. He says some pretty, pretty, pretty rough stuff to these churches. And some people say, well, where's the grace? The grace is he didn't eradicate them then and there. The grace is that he time and time again calls them to repentance. He reaches out to them time and time again. He begs them to return to him. He tells them it doesn't have to be this way. Repent. Be zealous. Be zealous for me, not for your agenda, but for my agenda. The next stage is represented, I believe, by Laodicea, depression, depression. Lethargy, the spiritual I can't get out of bed in the morning, the unresponsiveness. The zeal is strangled by the climate around you. That's Laodicea. They were neither hot nor cold. They weren't doing much of anything. They had uh, become, if you will, a holy huddle. They had an aimless existence. And Jesus, as we read, said, you know what? I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Oh, that you would be hot or cold. But because you're not, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth unless you repent. I'm gonna vomit you out. You're not gonna have anything to do with me because you don't listen to me, because you don't listen to the one that you love. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He tells them, those I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. He again calls them to repentance, calls them to return to him like the prodigal returned to the father. And what we see in these really harsh pronunciations, these pronouncements, these condemnations, is grace abounding, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy because he begs them to return. The final stage is acceptance. It's the embrace of death That's Sardis. And we're going to talk about Sardis in a minute. It had a reputation for action. It had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says you're dead. It looks alive, but looks can be deceiving. It's a dead man walking. It's a dead church walking. We'll see that in Sardis. You see that in a Riverside church. Dead on arrival, still dead today. Now, God has a call on every church and every Christian, and it's this, and this is what you see here in these texts. He says, follow me, serve me. Don't worry about being liked, don't worry about compromising so that you can be accepted by the culture rather than challenge and change the culture. Take up your cross daily and follow me and do not compromise. Persevere. That's our mission. You'll see that with Smyrna and you'll see that with Philadelphia. Smyrna was a poverty-stricken church. Philadelphia was a church with little power, little juice, little resources, and those are the only two that get a passing grade. And do you think they were perfect? Do you think they were sinless? Not if they were filled with people. But these are the only two that received the passing grade, that pass inspection because their desire is to be faithful to God's call upon them, where they are and how they are, and not to make excuses, and not to compromise, not to accommodate the culture. And so if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter three, verses one through six for starters. We're gonna take these churches out of sequence by spiritual condition. That's what we've been doing through this study within this study. This is listening to the one we love, part three, subtitled, a profile, a story of of two different kinds of churches. And we see this in Revelation 3, 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. It's a visible church with some kind of reputation. All these were, and maybe still are, maybe with the exception of Sardis, Christian churches. These churches are all in the 30 to 40 year old category. Most of them were probably planted out of Ephesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But in God's sight, this is a lifeless church. It's a church that is no longer a church. But he pleads with them. Look at verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have found your works, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. That wake up there, if you go to Isaiah and other Old Testament prophetic passages, awaken, O sleeper, usually is God speaking to an apostate, a spiritually dead, an outward Israel that is not an inward Israel people who are outwardly Jews, but inwardly are not Jews. Circumcision of the flesh, but not the circumcision of the heart. Here is a group of Christians that are outwardly Christian, but are not. It doesn't mean there aren't a few Christians among them, but he says, wake up. He says, listen to me. He says, remember what you have received, that's the gospel, that's the commission, and heard, keep it and repent. This gets back to the theme that we saw in chapter one. Blessed is the one who reads what's in this book of prophecy and hears it and keeps it because the time is near. As churches and individual Christians, we are called to live with urgency. And don't miss the mercy here. He's saying, listen to me. Repent. This is a gracious call to return to him. A call that will likely fall on deaf ears. Some churches, you know, all churches don't get this way overnight. It takes a while to get to this place. You have to go through all the stages of dying. And then he gives them consequences. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what at what hour I will come against you. This is the harshest threat that you see. Because let me explain to you some ancient Near Eastern and Greco-Roman background here. Coming like a thief, and a lot of times it's, some translations talk about coming like a thief in the night, is a, is a picture of one of the most violent types of attacks a, a human being could experience in that era. You, you know, in those days you had th- th- uh, thefts of opportunity. You know, you leave something out and somebody takes it. A thief in the night is gonna come to your house and attack you and take what is yours. It would be like a home invasion. It's a precise operation. It's, it's the worst kind of violent crime. And he is saying, you don't know when I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come for you if you don't do something about this. You belong to me. I raised you up to do this. And I'm gonna snuff you out. You don't know. It'll be like a thief in the night. And you know, the thief who came in the night in that era... You know, the, the guys who were crucified on each side of Jesus. Uh, crucifixion was reserved for the most violent types of criminals, It said of Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber, you know. He's telling them in the most graphic way that they could understand, you have betrayed me, you have been unfaithful to me. And, you, know, you, have, you have compromised in every way imaginable and you need to, what is still alive needs to do something because I'm going to come for you. And then in verse four, he acknowledges that he's not gonna destroy the righteous with the wicked. You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for, because they are worthy. And then he reminds them, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who is faithful will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And that speaks to the end of the age. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Once again, he says, listen to me. You you call yourself by my name. The church is the bride of Christ. You've taken my name, but you've been unfaithful. You lack infidelity. You are in this condition dead to me. Be alive to me. It's grace upon grace. Here's a dead church. What makes a dead church? What is the hallmark of a dead church? Failure to obey God. Failure to heed the call of Christ. Failure to fulfill the calling with which you've been called. Failure to honor keep and obey God's word. Failure to listen. We speak to God in prayer. He speaks back to us through his word. And he says, remember then uh, what you have received and heard. Listen to me. Keep it and repent.
1: Pastor Keith Crosby